Welcome to episode 7 of Staying Local. I know, I know, it's been a while between drinks and I'm sorry about that, but I'm very pleased to say that I've now got some help with this podcast, and that means that you can rely on a regular release on the 20th of each month. That's a new interview with an interesting council person every month. And some other big news, we have our first sponsor for this podcast. This episode, episode 7, is proudly brought to you by Maynard Marks Property and Building Consultants, working to ensure that every building in Aotearoa is safe, healthy and sustainable. Learn more at maynardmarks.co.nz. In this episode, Helen Rice had the opportunity to speak with Leonie Ray from Christchurch City Council. Leone currently holds two general manager roles for Christchurch City Council, corporate services as well as consents and compliance. Christchurch has been through an awful lot in recent times and Leone's role is a smorgasbord of challenging but interesting opportunities. I think you're going to enjoy this one. Ray to our Race Sphere podcast and thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy day to be interviewed. Kia ora Morena. For the past three months you've been, you've held two general manager roles at Christchurch City Council, general manager corporate services and general manager consent and compliance. Managing hundreds of people, how many people do you manage? Between six and seven hundred, I, I keep losing track of how many <laughs> Golly gosh, that's a lot of people to manage and I imagine that the job from time to time keeps you awake at night. Yes, it does. So uh, if I talked about what it keep, what keeps me awake at night, um, uh, Crochet City Council has been through uh, a lot of um, trauma in the last 10 years, earthquakes, uh, obviously was the biggest one and series of earthquakes that went on for several years. Then, we, of course, we had the um, Hill Portals fire, and that was pretty um, uh, catastrophic for some homeowners. And then we also had the terrorist attacks on the 15th of March last year, um, and then we get COVID. And for all of that, there's been pressure on our finances. So what keeps me awake is the fact that we are... Um, looking at our budgets, uh, reducing um, some some of the staff benefits have been cut first, and that that worries me. Mm-hmm. Uh, pay freezes, um, you know, removing a training and development. So your yeah, finances keep me awake. Um, also, um, what else keeps you awake probably is the complexity that I'm dealing with, and making sure that I'm not just dealing with the um, urgent but the important, because mm. um, at times when I've had things coming at me all day and you're constantly context switching. So it's making sure that you actually take time to think, what, 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 what's the important thing I need to do today? And right now that's budgets for the LTP, a long-term plan. Uh, and anyone listening who's involved in council at any management level will know how complex those are. And making sure that um, the teams are guided well in terms of what the expectations are from councillors, um, from our public, um, and then also from the executive team. So it's making sure those messages are very clear 
and I provide really clear directions. So that's the, the important stuff, which sometimes uh, you don't get time to deal with. So I tend to um, do that in my thinking time, and sometimes that happens in the middle of the night, early hours of the morning. I'm an early morning person, so um, yeah. So that's kind of my worries at the moment. Mm, and long-term yeah. plan in uncertain times. I mean, Christchurch yeah. has had some experience with that in terms mm. of the earthquakes because no one knew how long those earthquakes mm. would go. The September earthquake, then the February one, mm. and June, many in yeah. June, and many many aftershocks. So. Christchurch lived 10 years ago and for a few years in uncertain times. COVID is, has created mm. uncertain times for all of New Zealand. Mm. And we do not know when COVID will be uh, successfully vaccinated against. Mm. So how then does one plan when you're doing your long-term plan and you're trying to predict, um, you know, mm. to, to properly budget for the needed services at the council and... So that's a challenge. So we have obviously in um, in the consenting area. Um, actually, we're in the middle of a bit of a boom at the moment. To be honest, our limbs are through the roof. We're, um, far more this time uh, this year than we have ever done. Um, particularly July was busy. August a bit quieter, but still very busy. Um, and we're getting um, unprecedented numbers of of consents um, in the door. When you think about, we had the rebuild. Um, and we had a huge amount seen. We're actually seeing a, a similar curve, not as high, but certainly that um, that uptick. You know, it's not mm-hmm. you don't normally get time to deal with the upticks. You know, quite often it's a gradual, but we're finding that we're really busy. Um, we know that's not going to last. It can't last. I know that we've got three and a half thousand New Zealanders returning to New Zealand every day. Um, that's caused this. That's mm-hmm. going to dry up at some point. Um, so to predict it into the long-term plan, we're making budgets now for 1st of July next year and for the three, first three years of the end, of the long-term plan. Mm-hmm. That's a real challenge because um, we don't know what's going to happen. So what, what I do is, and how my team are working, is that we are taking uh, doing three scenarios that we'll present. Um, and uh, that's like, so we're looking at um, uh, pre-2010 numbers where we had the global recession. So numbers are quite down then, and we're taking that as our low, and then we're taking, obviously, um, not as much as the earthquakes, but certainly a little bit higher, mm-hmm. because we don't know, um, we may be a very popular um, place to come and live. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we're doing. And then also with that, we've also got to look at our resourcing. And that's a challenge because, um, once again, we've got to look at do we have a in-house, outhouse, outsource model? Um, and we've got to really look at that, you know. Um, do we reduce the number of staff in-house, send more external? Do we increase our internals? Do we take consents in from other councils? So we've got multiple scenarios to put forward for the LTP. What we'll land on? Probably something in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um we are very much used to pay in Christchurch. Most councils get a level of um, rate power funding. We don't. Um, so we have to match, I mean, revenue has to match our costs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, lots of things to think about. Now, that's in consenting. And the other part of corporate services hat on, I've got IT. We've got 180 people in IT. Um, and um, and we're wanting to invest more. Um, so, we've, so we are more digital, provide more digital experiences for the customers, um, reduce costs, efficiencies, 
We've got cybersecurity issues. Um, obviously, you've seen what's happened to um, Stock Exchange. So we're having to heavily invest in that. We're bringing on facilities all over Christchurch that need um, a, a, a reliable data network, which at the moment it's not. So a huge program to um, renew our data network. So we're asking for more money in the LTP for that, and that doesn't always go down that well either because people want don't see the value, but actually you've got to have good infrastructure. Uh, also have facilities. Um you know, reducing um, you know the cost of what the facilities, our lessons, buildings, expensive. Um, so there's challenges around the budgets for those because overhead costs are always going up. So I pressure to reduce those. Um, I have risk and audit. I have legal services. Um, yeah. So what a pot pourri! What a smorgasbord! <laughs> I know, I know. And like I tell you, it is, I I I've loved doing corporate services. It's um because obviously I tease my background, but um. Uh, particularly the legal team, we've just recently restructured the legal team um, and bringing more work in-house um, and sending out specialist work. So like, a lot of commercial and property more in-house. Um, yeah, so it's, um, uh, that's been um, interesting, um, going through that process and learning more about what they do. And Yeah, so. Well, in my experience, change always produces excellent results. It might take time for people to get on the bus once they're on the mm. bus they are, you know, motivated and inspired. And that brings me to a really good question, which is your leadership style. Yeah. How, how do you, with this enthusiasm, this energy and intelligence, inspire the people that you lead to be, get onto that bus? I, um, I, I focus on the why. So whenever I do anything, why are we doing it? Um, because everyone wants to know the why um, and, and the purpose. Um, so if I'm saying that we have to do a change, um, why are we doing that change? And um, so, you know, I think that you spend more time on the why than, than the what. Um, and you've got to, um, I, I like to think I'll present that with um, compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to understand, um, I always say to my leaders, you know, you've got, you've got news to deliver, just tell them the news. Don't wait until the end. But like, you know, when you write a letter and you've got, say that your consent's been approved, don't leave that at the last paragraph. Tell them straight up, you know. I understand that, Sandra, <laughs> because as a trial lawyer, I always go to the last page of the judgment. Mm. And, you know, I think, why doesn't the judge just tell us in the first sentence? Have we won or have we lost? <laughs> we all do it. <laughs> that last page. <laughs> and so if you're going to do a change, um, and, and this, is, this is one example of leadership, though, if you're going to do a change and, and you've got, you invite people to a meeting, the first thing you've got to say is actually no one's going to lose their jobs here. Or, look, there are going to be some changes and, and give them it to them straight away because they won't hear anything else. Mm. They, won't, they won't hear about all the rationale and all that. They've got to get their head around what, what does it mean for me first and then you can start working through the rationale and the why. Um, so, yeah, my leadership style, I think, I, I think I've always got to look through the lens of well, how would I receive this. Mm. Um, also, um, I think you've got to be really um, honest and relatable. So I think I'm really relatable. Um, uh, I don't. I remember when I got to the general manager role, and a colleague said, "Oh, now you've got to act like a general manager." And I said, "Well, what does a general manager act like?" Well, I don't know, but you know, you, you're very friendly with people. I said, "So you can't be friendly when you're a general manager." Um, and I sort of tried for a week, and it's just not me. So I've got great relationships across council. Um, 
Uh, Everyone who comes to my meetings, they always come into a meeting uh, with my team and uh, and they have respect regardless if we agree with them or not. Um, Those are are sort of, I've got really strong values about um, treating people well and um, uh, and drawing out the best in them. So I'd love to go to your backstory then because clearly I am talking to another great in our local government world and I'm always interested... Were you born like this or did you become like this? So if I wind you back to pre-Christchurch City Council uh, and we zoom back a few train stops or bus stops, <laughs> your very first job, if I'm right, from our chats earlier was working at NZ Railway. Mm. How did you come about to work at NZ Railway? Well, I grew up in, um, in North Canterbury, a small town, which is not small anymore, Angura. And um, uh, so, and all my uh, my father's family were there. So you know, big extended family. Um, but edu- no one was education wasn't huge. Um, so I was one of the first in my extended family to get a degree, and that wasn't until obviously I was a bit older. Um, so my um, my mother always felt that um, going to university would be a waste of time, and I'd be married at twenty and. So I was um, never expected to, you know, go and get an office job better than working at the laundromat, you know, do well at school so you don't end up on the um, counter at um, Woolworths. And uh, so that was kind of the expectation. And because I had no one around me, no influences around, edu- you know, no, well, I knew no one who was educated to university degree level, um, I never had any other expectations. So um, that's and of course then I got the um, the job at the New Zealand Railways came up and that was that two ticks because the government jobs have got job for life. So that's how I ended up at the railways. So I started out as an, as an office sort of junior, um, and because I was quick to pick up things, I was I'm very good at maths. I was um, very logical, hard working. I got to do varied jobs right across. Um, I can remember being station mistress at Addington Railway and um, uh, looking at working with the siding, uh, the, uh, the siding owners. They were um, like um, the timber, the Addington Timber, and they'd get their own, they had their own siding, and you'd book on their wagons to come in and get them <laughs> unloaded and they'd get them pulled out. So that's how I ended up there, and for quite a few years. So you say you're good at maths, and that sort of is a lovely sort of pathway into another conversation I'd love to have with you, which is not many in local government. I think have been croupiers <laughs> so from railway tracks to roulette tables you worked in the first casino in New Zealand tell yes. us about that experience um right so how did I end up there well I left New Zealand Railway when I had my first child uh, and um and then I um, did a few little part-time jobs but um, I wanted to um to get a uh, I always thought it was looked quite glamorous um it was actually quite hard to get a job because, in the, as, as a croupier because it was the first New Zealand and they had like hundreds of people applied and you went through massive amounts of screening. And, and every, every um, the programme was several weeks and you had to do these immense calculation, math, mathematical calculations because um, that's what croupiers do. You know, you've got, um, you know, five chips on 32 and seven on 17 and you have to work out what the payout is. All in your head, you know, there's no calculators. 
Um, and I got chosen and I got right through to the last last ones and I was there on opening night and very glamorous and it was wonderful and everyone in their ball dresses and that was probably the most glamorous night of being a croupier <laughs> because actually it's not that glamorous um, at all. Um, I did the four in the morning to midday shift and, um, and one of the um, things that um, uh, really, really sit in my mind is you get out of bed at three in the morning to go into work or half past two in the morning and you and you walk into this bright lights full of smoke because most days you could smoke, drunk people, uh, all partying all night and you've just got out of bed and then you start dealing <laughs> these massive games because quite often at that hour of the morning that's when the big high rollers come out and you're dealing with massive games and you're, having to calculate and control of the tables. Roulette is quite a big game to control and you've got people trying to steal chips and so forth. It's pretty full on. So that was, um, and it wasn't glamorous at all because people were abusive and it was quite a brain the croupier because they hadn't won and, yeah. And did you see some significant wins? Because, I, you know, we always <laughs> hear that the house is always the winner. Oh, I did see um, one guy win over 100k on the roulette table. Um, that's and I was I was I did that for about um, eighteen months and that was the biggest. I saw some bigger losses. Mm. I remember on the high rollers um, lounge one night, um, a guy um, uh, he was from overseas. Um, and he um, had sixty grand of chips, and I was dealing uh, blackjack, and um, he lost it all in twenty minutes. Oh my gosh. It wasn't even phased. Because wow. you have really big um, wow. maximum bets on those tables in the high rollers. Like you'll have, um, you know, 10,000 maximum bets or 50,000. He lost it all in 20 minutes. Then went up, got cashed in some more, and then went to someone else's table because I was wow. unlucky. <laughs> wow. And, and, and to me, standing there on, you know, probably at the, in those days, about $11 an hour, it's just, it's, it's hard to comprehend. Eleven dollars an hour, sixty thousand dollars, and so I I hear that you then went from front of the you know mm. the the casino to behind the scenes yes. surveillance. I love surveillance, but they did um, very long ten hour shifts, so it doesn't fit with my family, and they wouldn't do part time. But I loved surveillance because you know I'm probably more of a it, part of me is a bit of an introvert, but I just loved it, um, and. Um, yeah, so so watching the, well, what you'd do is you'd watch the big games and you'd go around different tables and you'd be also checking the payouts and making sure they were right and um, you quite often have to go through security footage to find evidence and things like the, the, the lady who tried to put a chip in her mouth, Coupier put a chip in her mouth and stole it and we found out and you could actually you know see it all happen. Um, oh, we, oh, we used to come and we used to have a funny tape that everyone would look at, like what had happened in the last 24 hours. And there was one guy who did a streak through the casino. So that was, well, that was a, a well-viewed tape, that one was. And yes. did you pick up any card counting? Yes, I picked up one card counter oh, in that wow. time because they're not that um, common. This person was from Australia. Um, and, and card counting, people think it's, you know, they think it's about memory. It's actually mm. about... Counting, we have a, you, you, you count the number of high and low cards. So if you're putting out lots of low cards, um, then you've got a good chance if you've got an eight that you're going to get a high card. So they say like, and you go plus, minus, plus, minus. 
and it's all done in your head. So very quick, you know, so it's incredibly very quick. So that logical brain, that quick brain, yeah. and maybe that's why you, you know you went from railways, um, you know, to uh, the casino, and then you became a software engineer. Yes. So what drew you to IT? <laughs> um, well, because of the career didn't work out so well. Um, and I look, I t- I'll be honest, I wanted a job that paid well and paid the same as a man. And I'll be honest, and I remember I thought I'm not doing office jobs for the rest of my life and doing jobs that were predominantly thought of as women's roles. Um, and also my husband worked out at Jade which is a software company in Christchurch, and I talked to many of the engineers there, and they convinced me to go for the role, and to, to try to train in, the, in that role. Um, so I went to university, and I studied, and I'll tell you about my first day of my degree. Um, uh, they did a test to see um, what your levels of maths was like, and I hadn't done maths for many years at school, um, and they did um, uh, algebra and truth tables, and I remember, I felt like Mr. Bean when he sat there and he, <laughs> and he was doing an exam and he had his pencils all lined up. Well, I was a bit like that. And all I could do was put my name at the top of the page because I didn't know any of it. And I thought, oh, and I just felt like I've got to walk out. This is the end of my my um, aspirations to become a software engineer. And um, But they called my name up and thought, oh, they're going to tell me to go home. But they sent me on a supplementary maths course, a few of us, and probably more mature students. And I got an A on that paper. So that was all the maths you need for um, computing because it's all it's all you know the, the binary systems and, mm. and algebra is huge and yeah. So yeah, and um, I loved I just loved it and um, I did data networking so I built modems, um, you know picked up packets off the net and um, and dissected them and decoded them and yeah loved Fantastic. it. Fantastic. So what's the future do you think for um, you know IT and local government? Oh, look, we've got an opportunity, I think, um, to um, uh, to provide a better customer service for our, our people, more online services. You know, look at building consenting. I mean, you know, there are different systems out there. We need to actually get together and uh, have a national system for um, most of our regulatory functions, you know, animal management, um, food, alcohol licensing, uh, I think it's crazy that we're all local local council all trying to do our own thing. Um, so yeah, that's where I think that we need to go online, self service, um, and in terms of uh, the the back the, the back office systems, um, again we're all doing the same thing. We all need you know mm-hmm. rating systems. We've all got our own rating systems and so forth. So I think it's an opportunity, but it's just someone you know taking taking control and actually doing it. Um, I think we've got an opportunity at Christchurch City. I think we've got um, uh, some good systems here. I think if we were to service other smaller councils and, and help them, then I think, mm-hmm. because it's all online now, everything is uh, SaaS solutions, which are software as a service. You know, we've got most of our servers sitting in Australia, you know, so it would be very easy for, for little councils to be able to hook into that. Um, and um, and provide the same experience for everyone, not just big, big metros. So I can just see you, Leone. You're the captain of the team, <laughs> all sorts of teams. Yes. When did you learn to become the captain of a team? I don't think I learned. I think I became. 
so right from when I first started working, I've had some appalling managers and um, uh, and I always said if I was ever going to lead people, I would lead people the way I wanted to be led. So I've, I've, re- I've read about it, I've um, experienced it. So I know I, I became more than I um, was taught for. Um, and my first leadership role was with a small software company and software engineers. Um, and uh, uh, so I actually asked them, what do you want from me? And that's what I've done every time I've got a new team. What do you want, what do you need from me? And then, because I think my job is to make their job easier. I'm there to um, remove the roadblocks, to remove the stress, to sort of let them get on and do what they're great at. That's, that's what I think a leader's role is. Although sometimes you're dealing with people on the team who don't know what they don't know. Mm, and how, how do you deal with those people? Um, so I'm leading of leaders at the moment, but if I've got people who don't know, um, I always, um, they probably do, I quite often um, try and tap into some of the experience and say, well, you could use that experience in the mm. situation. Um, oh, look, I provide lots of advice and mentoring. This approach it this way. Have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? Um, uh, and how they feel about a situation. I've coached a lot of people having performance um, um, sessions with their staff, and and how they could approach it. Um, so there is a training element to it, uh, but no one's taught me. Mm. No one has taught me other than uh, I've had some great um, advice but not actually what I'd say. I haven't learned anything in a classroom, mm-hmm. to be honest. I don't think you learn it in a classroom. So skills in action, they can only get you so far, though, can't yeah, they? they can. And so what do you think then is the, you know, the, the secret ingredient? Once you've got skills, you've honed your skills, and you can sort of act. Um, I mean, I, I hear this, and I kind of I think I know what your answer is going mm-hmm. to be from this discussion, and that's having a plan. Like yes. you, you seem to me somebody who doesn't kind of you know mindlessly go from day to day that you've got an agenda yes. you've got a plan and you're going to implement it which mm. is really constructive yes yeah, so i do have a plan i mean i have a um i um i do a lot of um uh, work with the team around where we want to be and how we're going to get there so i'm always a person that says right it's now september 2021 what does it look like what are we doing what's our focus what have we achieved and then work our way back so, so very action orientated. I'm a doer, mm. so um, that's why I think in some ways I'm a really good operations manager because um, I, I get frustrated with people who talk a lot, strategize, and then don't actually see any results. So yes, I have a plan. Um, I have people plans. So people plans for me is who are it's succession plans. Um, I know that I've got a team, a, a manager. I've had to convince that succession planning is a good thing to do. Um, and so we know where our talent is and who we want to grow um, for achieving financial um, results, good financial results. It's all about, you know, planning our spending and keeping on track of it. I, I check our finances every week. I don't wait till the end of the month for results. I know we're tracking already and you need to be able to pull the levers you've got to pull really, really quickly. And you need to know what they are. Mm. Um, and I teach my leaders to do that as well. We took um, the regulatory compliance and uh, area um, has always um, been um, over budget forever, and um, we got uh, we had five million dollars put onto our revenue um, three years ago, um, which was never going to be achieved. But things happen. Um, I sat with the team and I said I was only new to the general manager role. 
And I said to the team, we can't be victims here. You know, we got. To, I said, if we can put our hand on heart in the year and say we did everything we could to come on on budget, then we've done our jobs. And we ended up, rather than a five million deficit, we ended up with a one point eight. Wow. Now, even though we're in deficit, we had reduced it significantly by going for every line of the budget, cutting out, and the team were completely on board. They got it. They learnt. Um, they were felt really actually quite excited about what they could actually achieve when they actually had you know a clear mandate and not being that victim of well it's been done to us we can't do anything about it because I don't mm. I don't buy into the victim I think we need to do whatever we can and um, and, and make the best of it mm. yeah so um, you are a doer I can hear <laughs> I can see it and I've I'm known it because I've known you for you know many many years and I saw you. You know, when you came into uh, Christchurch in the IT um, area and then you moved into um, building consent and, and you were there on the coalface in 2013 mm-hmm. when the council lost accreditation to issue building consents uh, and with councils being reviewed every two years. I mean, that was, you know, a defining moment, a very mm-hmm. dark moment for the council. Uh, and that must have been really challenging for you to uh, switch the thinking uh, and motivate the team to fight back for accreditation mm. look I was I actually look at it as an amazing opportunity because actually out of something dreadful like that there was an incredible opportunity um, so I got shoulder tapped because I was leading the development team in IT and I got shoulder tapped and um, uh, not specifically by Doug Martin but um, he knew of me and um, wanted leadership and someone who really understood um, pro, um, uh, process re-engineering and how to do change management because there was going to be a lot of change. So I got shoulder to have in the interview, I didn't get any questions around building. I told them I know nothing, you know, I know nothing about um, uh, construction, but all the questions around leadership, change management, customer focus. And uh, yes, I got the commercial role and I was terrified. I was like, oh my goodness, you know what the expectations are going to be. My first meeting with my leaders, that my new leaders, like the building inspections team leader, building consenting team leader, engineering, I just said to them, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is what I'm here to do for you. I'm here to make, to make your staff's life easier because they are under so much pressure. And they, they had, you know, some of those staff members had 40, 50 consents. Um, and they were all doing this was crowd control. They were spending all day telling people why they couldn't do their consent. Um, so we took them all off them, and it was very radical. Um, took them all off them, and only gave them gave them ones that enough that they could actually get through. And we rather looking at inputs, we looked at outputs every day. How many did we get out today? And then we also got someone to go through a list to say actually the engineering list to say actually that only needs a ten minute review. Let's push that to the top, get that out the door. It was all about getting them out the door. Total change of focus. And then we had one team working on new stuff coming in. So I think from in, in, in um, 20, um, I think it was August 2013, we barely had a consent that went over 20 days. We still had a backlog of historical ones, but the new process, we actually made sure that we didn't put the new ones at the bottom, and it significantly changed the way that they worked. And look, I still don't know much about construction, but I know a lot about um, how we got the people motivated, what made, what worked. I can remember Peter Sparrow, who was the um, uh, the City Rebuild um, General Manager, said to me, you know, what's happening? I said, actually, Peter, for the first few months, all I'm focusing on is getting the people right because we're going to do a significant change in their processes. 
So it was focusing on their well-being, getting them ready for the change. And the day I launched the change, we're going to change the way you do everything in terms of their process. I said to them, um, look, we'll give it two weeks. If it doesn't work, we'll throw it out, but I need your full commitment. Full commitment. And we got it. And it was significant. And we went from 37% to, to 100% really quickly. Really quickly before credit. I think when we, when we got the um, irons came in, I think we were in the 80s, and then we got to 100. And now it's been sitting at 99, 100 ever since. Marvellous. Congratulations. Yeah. Magnificent it was stuff. A it was a team effort, though. It was a mm. team effort, but they just needed they just needed, needed to have another look at uh, how they could do things. As leaders, uh, often we don't make our results visible. You know, there's a bit of a tall poppy syndrome in New Zealand, and so we don't shout uh, because we think even whispering is too bold and too um, arrogant sometimes. So do you have a view on that, sharing success? Um, well, I, my father was very much of the Colin Meads uh, type that you don't uh, ever, like when Colin Meads did an amazing try, fantastic all black, he would um, go back, you know, walk away as if his mother had just died, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my father's view. You never, ever tell anyone how good you are. And he would call it, you know, skiting. Um, tall poppy, I think that... Um, I like to think my actions and my my results um, um, show my capability. Um, I've got better at it as I've got older um, and talking about um, good results um, and actually being proud and saying, actually, I'm really proud of what I've achieved. Uh, yeah, so look, I think we've got, we need to get away from that. Um, yeah, it's most, of, most of it, I think, in New Zealand, and I think particularly for women, um, it's seen as, you know, we're, we're hard, too hard on yourself, you know, you need to be more humble, but I don't think that's necessary. I think we need to be a bit more proud of what we do and what we achieve. Look, we've got two women going for, uh, you know, the two top parties in New Zealand, mm. the leadership, yeah. and that's incredible for such a small country and what a great success. Um, I think that um, Jacinda does it very well. I think she talks about successes, but she doesn't, she doesn't look um, uh, arrogant when she does it. I think she's a great example. Um, you talked, you asked me about great leaders. I mean, Michelle Obama, you know, she's, mm. she's um, incredible as well. Once again, humble, but also, you know, proud of who she is and, and what she's achieved. Mm. It's that lovely combination of warmth and strength. Yes, I think so. Yeah, and that's yeah. In, in my view the attributes of a successful leader mm. and celebrating success, yes. standing in the sunshine and not in the shadows. Yes, part of our agenda for doing this podcast is there are so many greats mm. and uh, giving them visibility to our client base and having these conversations starts other conversations mm. and the dissemination and the learning through it is is our intention mm. um, so again wonderful to be sitting here with you today and I just have a couple of questions just to end our session uh, it's always nice to know more about the person and I'm interested in what your interests are outside work oh quite broad actually I um, enjoy dress design I've um, uh, always spent a lot of time making my own clothes being tall and hard to buy off the shelf um, and golf I play golf uh, my handicap, for those who are interested, is um, <laughs> has been down to 21, but it's um, at 26 at the moment because I haven't played enough. Uh, but I've only been playing for about 12 years. 
Um, gardening, I have a huge garden in Governor's Bay and I grow my own vegetables and I've got a little woodland pathway I'm building and so gardening I really love. And I've got um, two beautiful grandchildren, a four-year-old granddaughter and a 21-month-old grandson and they certainly take up a bit of time as well. So lots of interests. And I love photography too. I'm, I'm, yeah, I love anything creative. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So last question again. Thank you so much today for being here. Wonderful to hear and share stories with you. Dinner guests, if you could invite your favourites to dinner, who might they be? Well, I really thought about this because it's probably a big list, but I thought well, I'd like a sort of an eclectic group. I, I thought Oprah Winfrey would be amazing because I think she, would, she has, um, has such an interesting life uh, and she would have, um, uh, she, you could learn a lot from um, David Rock, he's a neuroscientist, um, so I've read a lot of his books on leadership and um, and how the brain works, at, how the how the mind works at work, um, and how to get the best out of yourself and understanding that when you're under stress and these are the sort of reactions you'll have. So I've learned a lot about my own how my own brain works and when I'm at my best or not. So David Rock is a great author. So how do we get the best out of ourselves? Well, we recognise when you are at your best and your best times for decision making. Um, and also how you, how you emotionally react to something um, and, and, and avoid those situations where things make you feel um, anxious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and he also talks about how to get the best out of other people and how their mind might work. Yeah, so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and Monty Don, who is a BBC um, Gardener's World presenter and he has his own um, uh, amazing garden um, in the UK, and um, uh, yeah, he's just really warm and so interesting and amazing gardener and amazing gardens, and so I'd probably pick his brains for a garden advice. So quite a different, yeah, quite a different looking bunch, but I think three of them would be quite interesting. Oh, well, that's a lovely note to finish on, sort of the growth that I have seen in your career and I look forward to seeing in the future. Congratulations. Thank you for chatting today. That's all right. Thanks, Helen. We really appreciate Leonie Ray for taking the time to be interviewed and thank you all for joining us for episode seven of Rice Bears podcast, Staying Local. This episode was proudly brought to you by Maynard Marks Property and Building Consultants. You can learn more at maynardmarks.co.nz. We look forward to uh, discussing more matters with you on the 20th of December, 2020. Thanks team.